Well, there's that old expression that says, when it rains, it, what, pours, right? And if there was ever a year that that fit, I would imagine 2020 is that year. Whatever you thought your year was going to look like at the beginning in January as you were preparing your resolutions, if you do that, or you were thinking about your plans, your goals for the year, you were thinking about where your family might be and what job you might have or not have or what it might look like or where your retirement might be or where your stocks might be or where uh, your family might be, even just location-wise. I'm sure for so many in this room, this year has thrown your plans into a state of chaos and confusion. You look at initially there, it was COVID-19 hitting the the headlines, and it was far off from us at first. It was in China, and we were thinking to ourselves, well, we're fine because that's over there. And then all of a sudden, it was here, and it began to to become a, a bigger deal and a bigger deal and a bigger deal until eventually everything got shut down. And we kept saying to ourselves, this is an unprecedented time that we've never experienced this. And then after all of that, as we began to reopen our economy, we had these protests and these marches and these riots that began to erupt in different places around our country. And you you saw buildings on fire and you saw just violence and you saw, again, chaos and confusion and disorder. And then there's, of course, the fact that this is an election year and we've got the election coverage that's ramping up and everything now seems to be a political angle that one person or another person is taking on a particular stance or a particular issue and we get to listen to all of it and try to decipher what is true from what is error and what is factual from what is false in the midst of that. And then beyond that, if you were paying attention a couple of days ago, there was this decision handed down by the Supreme Court that has far-reaching implications Uh, for the church, for religious institutions, schools, academies, uh, regarding whether or not they can hire, fire somebody who is of the LGBTQ background and the rights that are now protected there. All we need to do is open up our our news browser and the reasons to mourn are aplenty for us. We step back and we say, wow, when it rains, it it really does pour. And right now it is is pouring for us that the, the things that are not good news it's something that the world even recognizes. Uh, John Krasinski set up a, a, a YouTube show during the quarantine from his home office. John Krasinski's an, an actor, uh, and he set up a YouTube show called Some Good News. And Krasinski's an unbeliever. He's not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination. But even he realized, man, we, just, we need some good news because right now as we look around our world, all we're seeing, all we're reading, all we're experiencing is just the bad news. And it causes us to grieve. It causes us to mourn. But what we're going to find in our text together this morning is rather than look back to the world that causes us to mourn and look for comfort in this world, we need to look for comfort from the only one that can ultimately provide it, and that is from Jesus Christ. So grab your Bibles, take your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 5. The Beatitudes, again, this is early in Jesus' ministry. You've got all of these crowds that have massed to follow him because Jesus is famous at this point in time. People want to know him, they want to be near him, they want to be healed by him, they want to see him do a miracle. And so they're gathering, they're flocking to him to the point that he goes up on this hillside, this mountainside, to sit down to teach, to reach as many people as he can with his voice. And he begins to teach them, saying, and he says the first one that we studied last week, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then our text together this week, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. To mourn something, it's, it's a, a visible sorrow that takes over. It, it's not just being sad, it's not just being disappointed, it's not just being discouraged. To mourn is to be physically affected by your grief and your sorrow. 
It's almost a state of being overwhelmed with things. You think of Job's response after finding out what had happened to his family, that he had lost his possessions, that he lost his servants, that he lost even his own children. And he sits down in a heap of ashes. And when Satan goes after his own body and afflicts him with boils, and you see the picture of Job sitting in the, the pile of ashes and scraping his body with that pot shirt, right? That's a man in mourning for all that he had experienced, all of the loss and the tragedy that had befallen him. Or you think of Naomi after she had lost her husband and she had lost her, her sons as well. And she goes back to, to Israel and she goes back with Ruth and, and she goes back there and she tells the women in Israel, don't call me Naomi, but call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Lord has been bitter to me. He has dealt bitterly with me. You have Naomi mourning the loss of her husband and her sons. Then maybe you have David mourning over Absalom's rebellion against him in 2 Samuel 13, and then ultimately mourning Absalom's death in 2 Samuel chapter 19. And David's mourning of Absalom's death in 2 Samuel 19, it was so visible that he was actually confronted by his men saying, look, this is a day of victory for Israel, but you mourning over Absalom's death is turning this into a day of discouragement, a day of defeat for us. Josiah was mourned corporately by all of Israel after his death, being a good king. Recently in our daily Bible reading, Ezra mourned over the sin of the people, mourned over the intermarriage of the Israelites. In Ezra chapter 10, verse 6, it says, Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went into the chamber of a name that is hard to pronounce, Jehohanan, there you go, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. Ezra's mourning over sin. And then you have Nehemiah mourning over the consequences of the, the sin of Israel, mourning over the destruction of Israel. He hears news that the walls of Jerusalem are just broken down and in tatters, and the city is vulnerable and exposed. And it says in Nehemiah 1.4, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. It's a, a visible sorrow. It's a visible uh, discouragement. It's a, a visible sadness that's almost overwhelming. And you remember what happened with Nehemiah. Nehemiah was wearing it so much about his expression in his face that he went in before the king as the cupbearer. And the king says, Nehemiah, what's wrong with you, right? The king is able to perceive on Nehemiah's face, ne Nehemiah's expression, Nehemiah's countenance, that there's something going on. So to mourn something is not just to feel a, a sorrow or a disappointment or a discouragement, but it's to feel uh, something that, that causes us to be physically overwhelmed by a, a state of grief or sorrow. It's really the antonym of joy. It's, it's really the, the opposite of what we're talking about here with this idea of being blessed. And so it's interesting, it's puzzling even, that Jesus would give this beatitude to this group of people that are listening to him saying, blessed are those who mourn. Happy, joyful are those who are mourning. Again, you're not going to hear that from the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. You're not going to hear that from the world. The world is not going to say, you know what? You are fortunate if you are sorrowful. You are fortunate if you are grieving. But that's exactly what Jesus says. Blessed are those who mourn. In the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 6, verse 21, the parallel uh, uh, beatitude there, Jesus says this, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Again, we don't think about somebody as blessed who is weeping, who is grieving, who is mourning, who is sorrowful. Uh, Jim Boyce, the, the commentator on, on the Sermon on the Mountains as well, so much of, of the rest of Scripture, says this, that, that Jesus is basically implying that the way to a jubilant heart is through tears. 
The way to a jubilant heart is through tears. James parallels so much of the Beatitudes, and he even says this in James chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. He says this. He says, be wretched, be miserable, is what James is saying. Be distressed and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So there James is even more explicit and direct than Jesus was here. Jesus says, blessed are you who mourn. James says, be wretched, be mournful. It's a a command there in scripture. In fact, the context there in James, James is is addressing the the church there and he's addressing some people who have gone wayward and, and begun to fight with one another. It says this in James chapter four, verse one. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So there in James chapter 4, what we see is we see James confronting a group of people who have been looking to the world for their comfort who've been looking to the, the world for, for joy and for satisfaction, that they're enslaved to their passions and it's causing quarrels and fighting among them. And they're, they're so in love with the world that James confronts them and says, you are an adulterous group of people. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world, being at home in the world, being comfortable in the world, being satisfied in the world is hostility towards God, is enmity towards God. He says, no, rather we should be those who mourn in this world those who are wretched, miserable, distressed even in this world. Because our home is somewhere else, right? We are aliens and strangers in this world. And so this idea of mourning being something that causes blessing, that causes something that's, that's uh, really ultimately joyful for us or happy for us, it, it's strange to us. And yet at the same time, we understand. We understand why James is saying, look, if we're going to be following God in this world, we're going to be mourning quite a lot. And again, it's not hard. You open up your, your news browser and you see the headlines day after day after day after day that cause us to mourn, that cause us to feel that grief. And so it's clear to us, it's understandable to us that mourning is a normal part of our life as believers. And Jesus says we should expect it, that this should be a part of our normal life, that this is not abnormal, but this should be something that, that we see and we experience and we feel daily as believers, as we live our lives as aliens and strangers in this world. First point together this morning is this, expect that morning. Expect sorrow to accompany life as a Christian. Expect sorrow to accompany life as a Christian. This is another characteristic, another trait, another marker of the, the kingdom citizen that Jesus is holding out for us here. That as we walk in this world, we are going to be those who feel this sorrow over the state of things. We're going to be those who mourn over the state of things in this world. And it's, it's not hard for us to see why. 
But yet at the same time, there are those that profess to be believers that you don't see the same sorrow. You don't see the same grief over the sin in the world. And I think there's two main reasons why. The first is there are those that choose to just ignore the brokenness around them. They choose to ignore the the pain and the sorrow that people are going through, the the effects of the fall. I don't know if you've ever turned on a a televangelist and, and watched them and seen their big cheesy grin on the camera and they're talking about you know, your best life now, and if you have enough faith that God is going to give you that car, God is going to give you that house, God wants you to be happy, God wants you to have that job, God wants you to have those possessions, God wants you to have that bank account, God wants you, if you have enough faith, you are going to have, you're going to have, you're going to have, you're going to have, so be happy, be joyful, be, be excited about life, go out and seize the day, and I don't know if you've ever heard those messages and looked at them and said, what are you, do you even live in the same world as we live in right now? There, there seems to be a massive disconnect. And in fact, one of these more well-known televangelists has been on nationally syndicated talk shows where he's been asked directly from an unbeliever, hey, you know what? You profess to be a believer and, and a lot of times Christians are talking about sin and you're not really talking about sin or brokenness at all. And his response was, yeah, they get enough of that from the world. I'm not here to give them that. I'm here to give them hope and joy and love. It's like, where's the disconnect? Well, the disconnect is they're choosing not to acknowledge it. They're choosing to ignore the brokenness. But man, God desires that we come face to face with the brokenness. He desires us to to get to the end of ourselves and the end of our hope in this world. Think of Solomon as he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, especially that opening chapter where he indicts everything in this world with that statement that we know so well, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's vapor, it's here, and it's gone. And if we put our hope there for comfort, for joy, for satisfaction, we are going to be left disappointed. So much of the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon going from one thing to another, to another, to another, going, look, I pursued this and it didn't satisfy. I pursued this and it didn't satisfy. I pursued this and it frustrated me. I pursued this and it left me upset. Solomon's driving to the, the very end, which he says we need to get from living life under the sun to living life for what's over the sun. But God wants us to look around at what's under the sun and to mourn over it. He wants us to feel that sorrow. Romans 8, through 23, Paul says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but also we ourselves. Christians groan, he says, We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons in the redemption of our bodies. So, man, there there should be a a constant sense of that groaning within us, that we recognize that things here in this world are not as they should be. And we groan and we long for the day when God will return, when Christ will return for his church, when eventually the, the kingdom will be set up here on earth, when the new heavens and new earth will be realized, when things will be made right. But until they are made right, we live here and we groan for that day when they will be. And so we mourn and we feel that grief and we feel that sorrow. So the first reason why some Christians may not experience that is because they they choose to ignore it. It's taking your head and planting it in the sand and and piling sand over the top of it and, and just pretending that everything's okay. Second reason why is because Christians have become too much like the world to mourn what's going on. That there's no distinction any longer. Their light has been dimmed so significantly that it's almost indistinguishable from the darkness. 
Paul addresses a circumstance like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He's dealing with the church discipline situation here with, where a, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. And this church that Paul is writing to, the church of Corinth, they're boasting about their graciousness, their kindness, their love, their compassion, that they're willing to even allow this man to continue to be a member of their church because, hey, you know what? Everyone is welcome here. Have we heard that in our modern culture, maybe? And they're willing to say, you know what? We're not here to judge. Yeah, come on in. We want you to be here because we want you to to know the love of God. And so come on in. Yeah, you're welcome here. And Paul writes this to them. He says, it's actually reported You can sense his shock. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. It's that boasting in their graciousness, their kindness, their compassion. Look how loving of a church we are. We welcome them in anyways. All are welcome here. You're not gonna be judged. Come as you are, be who you are. Paul says, you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to, you know what the next word is? Mourn. Feel this grief, this sorrow over sin in your midst as a church. Ought you rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The reason they weren't mourning is because this church had become too much like the world. What we ask ourselves was, doesn't the world also mourn things? Sure. Absolutely it does. Yes, the world mourns racial, social injustice, political battles, sickness, disease. The world knows what it is to mourn somebody who's lost their job. The world knows what it is to mourn uh, a broken relationship. The world knows what it is to mourn unfulfilled, unsatisfied goals and dreams. The world knows what it is even to mourn death. And so it's not that the world doesn't mourn that distinguishes us. What it is that distinguishes us is the reasons why we mourn. And that's what separates us. Should we mourn and feel sorrow over injustice? Yes. Absolutely, as the church, we should. And I'm not making any sort of political or social commentary here. What I'm saying, men, is we need to be able to look at a situation and see black and white. When there has been injustice done, we need to be able to say that's wrong and we grieve over that. And the reason, though, is not because we want some utopian society, not because we're after rights for one thing or another thing, but the reason why we mourn over injustice when we see acts of injustice is because our God is a God of justice. And we mourn the affront against him that that sin is. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, 18, God says this through Moses, that he, God, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Men, it should bother us when we see acts of injustice against those in our society who can't stand up and defend themselves. James one twenty seven in the New Testament, James echoes these thoughts. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so the world mourns injustice. Should the church mourn injustice? Yes, but for a different reason. We mourn because it's an affront against our God. We mourn because it's evidence of the brokenness in this world. What about sickness, strife, poverty, death? Does the world mourn those things? Yes. Should the church mourn those things? Yes, but for different reasons. Cancer, 
Does the world know how to mourn cancer? Yes, absolutely they do. They mourn that it cuts a life short. They mourn that it changes the quality of life that's left to be lived. They mourn over those things. And and we as the church mourn similarly, but even more than that, we mourn over something like cancer because it reminds us of the fall. It reminds us of the brokenness of this world, that this world is not the way that it should be, but we exist under the, the curse of sin. And our bodies break down and contract these diseases that we aren't able to fight against. And so that reminds us that things aren't the way they should be. And we mourn over that because of of what it means for our world and the hopelessness of our world. Broken relationships. Does the world mourn over something like divorce? Does the world mourn over two friends who were once close and dear that are now not on speaking terms because there's strife and enmity there? Does the world know how to mourn those things? Yes, they do. But should the church also mourn that? Yes, absolutely. And again, for different reasons. We mourn broken relationships because, again, it it reminds us of the fall. It reminds us of the consequences of sin relationally with one another. It drives us all the way back to Cain and Abel and everything that's happened since then that causes pride, that causes egos, that causes strife from one man to another. And so we mourn when we see a marriage dissolve because it's a reminder of the fall. It's a reminder of the curse of sin under which we live and operate and exist. Poverty. Does the world mourn poverty? Absolutely it does. Should the church mourn poverty? Yes, it should. But for a different reason. We as the church mourn over the state of of poverty in the world because again, it reminds us of the fall. And all of the different factors that can lead to poverty, whether it's oppression or whether it's the consequences of of sinful behavior or wars or viruses or natural disasters. We, We mourn all of those things because all of that reminds us of the fall and that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. We don't mourn over poverty because we want everybody to be on level footing and everybody to have the same. We mourn because it reminds us of the brokenness, of the fallenness of sin and the weight of the curse under which we all live. Death. Does the world know how to mourn death? Absolutely it does. Should the church mourn death? Yes, but differently, right? We mourn over death because again, it reminds us of the fall and it reminds us that the greatest enemy of all, which is death, is yet to be vanquished. It will be, but we still feel the sting of death right now as we wait that day. And so there there should be a sober-mindedness about us, men. And I'm not saying there should be like that from Winnie the Pooh, Eeyore, thanks for noticing me, that kind of like morose depression that we wear about ourselves. That's not the point here. But the point is that that we should have a, a sobriety about us that never forgets the fact that we live in a world that is tainted by the fall. Jesus mourned, didn't he? As we think about our Savior and following in the footsteps of our Savior, how about the death of John the Baptist? After John was executed, Jesus learns about it in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, in other words, the report of John's death, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Why? To to be alone, to pray to the Father, to mourn the loss of John. Or there's the, the death of Lazarus. If you've got your Bibles, flip over to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 we see again this this mourning, this outward sorrow from our Savior. Pick up in verse 30. 
It says, now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but it was still, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come see. Jesus wept. Notice verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. So here you have our Savior. Here you have the light of the world who came into the world to bring life. Here you have the, the giver of eternal life. Here you have the one who knew that imminently he was going to roll the stone away where he stinketh inside, right? And, and call Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus was going to come out. Jesus knew what the rest of the story was. And yet he's mourning and he's weeping and he's grieving to the extent that people see him and say, wow, how much did he love him? Why is Jesus mourning? Because he's mourning death. He's mourning sin. He's mourning the brokenness of this world. Jesus mourned the rejection of Israel in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. Jesus is mourning the fact that the Jews spurned him, that the Jews rejected him. Lamenting, saying, I would have done this, and yet you were not willing. And then, of course, there's the cross. Matthew 26, 38. Then Jesus said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death, remain here and watch with me. And so as Jesus anticipates the cross, Isaiah would say in Isaiah 53, he felt the anguish of his soul. The mourning over what lay in front of him. You, you think of him pleading right after this when he goes and he kneels down at that rock and he begins to plead and pray to the Father, Father, if there's any other way, please let it be done. But, but more than all of that, let your will be done. That he's in such anguish as Luke's gospel records that he's sweating like drops of blood pouring from his forehead. He's mourning what awaits him. See, Jesus mourned over the brokenness of this world. And men, we should mourn and feel grief and feel sorrow over the brokenness of this world as well. When we experience that, we're walking in the footsteps of our Savior. We are following Jesus' lead as we mourn over the brokenness of the world around us. Our best day is always going to be marred by the fact that we live in a sinful and broken and fallen world. And yet, there's something about our confidence that we have through our relationship with Jesus that allows us to see the rest of this beatitude and understand what Jesus meant when he said, blessed, happy, fortunate. Because Jesus says in the rest of it, blessed are you who mourn for you shall be what? Comforted. That's why we're blessed. That's why we're happy. That's why we can be considered those who are the, the fortunate ones because there's a comfort coming for us. In Isaiah's prophecy, in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 through 11, writing some 700 years before the cross, describing the cross in such graphic detail, Isaiah says here in Isaiah 53, verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord, the will of Yahweh to crush him, the servant, Jesus, he has put him to grief. Notice that word there, grief, sorrow, mourning. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Here it is. Out of the anguish of his soul, he, the servant, Jesus, shall see and be satisfied. By what? By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, shall Jesus make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And so Jesus, in the anguish of his soul, as he approached the cross, was comforted, was satisfied by a thought. You know what that thought was? The righteousness, the justification of many that he was going to accomplish through the cross. The writer of Hebrews said it this way. He said that Jesus despised the shame, endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him. What's the joy that was set before him? The knowledge of what he was accomplishing at the cross. The knowledge that at the cross he was ransoming, he was redeeming. Those that God has set aside as his to be his sons and daughters. And so Jesus was comforted in his grief over the cross by this thought. And similarly, we too should be comforted by a deliverance that's going to be ours, not temporally from this world. Not temporally from the things that we mourn over in this world. But a, a deliverance eternally that's going to be ours because of Christ and because of the cross. Our second point together this morning is this. Seek comfort the only place it will last. Seek comfort the only place it will last. When my daughter was an infant, she was colicky. And she did not want anyone else to hold her most of the time except for her mama. When my wife was holding my daughter, she was comfortable. She was comforted. She knew she had her mom. She knew she was with her. But if somebody else came along and said, hey, can I hold her? We used to have to apologize. Sure, you can hold her, but we're sorry for what happens as a result. Because she knew all of a sudden she wasn't with mom anymore. She wasn't the place where comfort was secure, where comfort would last. Even I would, would hold her, and she would be fine with me for a little while, but then that would wear off, and she would want mom again. See, man, the, the world has plenty of things that it's going to throw at you for comfort as you mourn over the fallenness of this world. There's plenty of things that the world is going to put at you and, and hold out to you and say, look, find comfort here. Whether that's through money or whether that's through hope in a, a, a drug or a cure for what's a virus or a disease that, that's out there. Or it's a, an, eco, an economic stimulus payment coming around for a second round of those coming out again. Or it's the hope and is the headline that says, hey, you know what, the riots are subsiding and the protests are dying down and you've got this sense of comfort that you're longing for for things to get back to normal, whatever that looks like. Or you're, you're hoping in the comfort of uh, our president winning re-election and that's where your, your comfort is going to be found right now. Or you're hopeful that your comfort's going to be found in your kids going to a good school and getting a good job and, and doing well for themselves in life. Or the world will, will throw plenty of sin at us to dull our senses and to numb the discomfort in the morning that we feel. To allow us to, to try to escape from things, whether that's through drugs or alcohol or sex or pornography or whatever it may be. There's plenty of imitate, imitation comfort that the world will throw at you. The problem is none of it will last. None of it solves the problem. The problem is an eternal problem. The problem is a, a, a curse of sin that, 
mankind doesn't have the cure for. Nobody does. And nobody will. The only cure exists through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why the answer to comfort for Christians is that it's, it's found in one place, in one name only. In that place, that name is the name of Jesus. That he is the key to the comfort that we want. He is the key to how do we take another step forward in this, more, this world when it just seems like there's more and more and more and more and more for us to feel mourning and sorrow about. And so as we mourn over sin, I want us to think about two categories. Number one, I want us to think about how we mourn over our own sin and how Jesus is the answer to that and the, the comfort for that. And then we'll talk about how we mourn over the sin of, of others. But we mourn over our own sin, at least we should, right? Second Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about feeling a, a, a godly grief, a godly sorrow, a godly mourning over our sin that should lead us into repentance, Oh, well, there it is, man. There's that word repentance again. Here comes the, the legalistic hammer on why we need to, to obey and we need to conform. No, that's, that's not the point. The point is Jesus in this, right? He's the reason why you repent. It's not your accountability partner. It's not your small group leader. It's not your pastors. It's not so that you won't feel like a hypocrite when you come to church. It's not so that you won't feel ashamed to pray. It's not so that you can read your Bible without guilt. It's not so that your wife will be happy with you, your boss will be happy with you, your coworkers will be happy with you. It's, it's not any of that. It's not so that you can go, God, are you happy with me now because I've repented? Your repentance of your sin is about your relationship with Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, again, right before he talks about Christ going to the cross, the writer says this, let us... Lay aside, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who, by the way, are witnesses in the sense not that they're watching us, but that they're testifying, they're pointing us to the finish line. They're ones that have run the race before us, saying, look, the finish line is that way. Keep going, keep pressing on. He says, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on who? Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. So men, that laying aside the sin and weight that, that entangles us, that's that act of repentance that we're talking about here. We mourn over the sin in our lives and we say, okay, I wanna lay it aside. I wanna take it off is the imagery there. The, the runner getting ready for the race, stripping down so that he's not gonna be encumbered by a weight vest or encumbered by his warm-up suit, right? He's taking those things off and setting them aside. He doesn't need them. They're not helpful to him, right? Sin is not helpful in our pursuit of Jesus and that's why we repent. Because as we repent and put sin off in our lives, it draws us nearer to Christ, and that's what we're after. It allows us to run faster, harder, more diligently towards Jesus. And so the reason that you repent is because when we have sin in our lives, it's a barrier between us and Jesus. It's slowing us down in our relationship with Jesus. It's hindering, it's obscuring the finish line so that we can't clearly see Jesus. And so when we have sin in our lives, we feel mourning over that sin and we set it aside, we repent of it because we want to be closer to Jesus. We understand that sin as we see it in our lives is evidence of the fall and its spread and its damaging effects. 
We understand as we see sin in our lives that this is that which caused Jesus to go to the cross, as Boyce put it, to step between the wrath of God and us who have faith in Jesus as our Savior. And so that, that causes the mourning, the sorrow, as we understand what our sin meant for our Savior. But then what leads us to repent from it is because we love Jesus. And we want to be closer to him in our relationship with him. We want our relationship to be unhindered. And so we put sin off to be able to be closer to Jesus. Second thing I uh, talked about I want us to consider is how we can have comfort when we consider the sorrow that we experience as a result of the sin of others, including Adam's sin here. And I say that because I want you to even think about the idea of natural disasters, of earthquakes, of cancer, of sickness, of disease, of car accidents, of things that cause us to feel grief and sorrow that we may not be able to say, well, this guy's to blame for that, but we still feel the, the loss and we still feel the, the pain and, and it's still traceable back to sin, right? Because it's still traceable back to the fall of man in, in Adam. But there's also those sins where you are sinned against by a specific person, by a boss or a coworker or a friend or a family member, by a loved one. How do we deal with that? How is Christ, how is Jesus the answer to the mourning that we feel there? Well, he's the answer, not necessarily in a temporal sense. It doesn't mean that things are going to be okay because, hey, Jesus. You know, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden the coronavirus is going to go away and everything's going to be back to normal because, hey, Jesus. It doesn't mean that the job is going to come through because, hey, Jesus. It doesn't mean that the cancer is going to go away because, hey, Jesus. See, when we have our minds set there, which unfortunately is where so many of the the prosperity gospel proponents want our minds fixed is, is temporarily. When our minds are fixed there, we're like what C.S. Lewis talked about, that child playing in the, the slum, playing with mud because he has no idea what's meant by a, a holiday at the sea. See, our, our expectations are, of comfort are far too small if they're bound by what's under the sun. The reason Jesus is the answer is because he gets us over the sun. He offers a comfort to us that this world can't touch that no doctor, no matter how smart, educated, intelligent they are, could ever come through to provide. That no job offer could scratch. That no vaccine can compare to. This comfort, this mindset, the reason why we can be comforted, is described by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Paul says, So we do not lose heart, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're here and they're gone. But the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, in our bodies, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may be found not to be naked. And so there's this day that we are longing for that's yet future, where this light momentary affliction will all of a sudden be light momentary affliction, so that we can see and feel and experience this eternal weight of glory. Well, what's the key to us experiencing the eternal weight of glory? Or rather, I should say, who is the key to that? Jesus. Without Jesus, 
there is no eternal weight of glory that awaits for us. And so as you experience this light momentary affliction and you feel the weight right now of this light momentary affliction, your comfort is found in knowing that Jesus is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. Your comfort is found in knowing, as Jesus said in John 14, look, if I go away, I'm going to come back for you. I'm going to my father's house, and there are many rooms in my father's house, and I go to prepare a place for you. So as you live here as a stranger and an alien, your comfort is found in knowing that Jesus is preparing a home for you in eternity. What's that going to be like? Revelation 21. Revelation 21, John sees a picture of the new heavens and new earth. And he says this in verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will, here it is, wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Again, I ask you, what's the key to you and I experiencing that future reality? Jesus. It's Christ. He is where our comfort is found. Without him, there's no hope for anyone. There's no hope for for those who are feeling the grief and the sorrow of this world. We have to be comforted by Jesus because Jesus is our hope. Jesus is the one who endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. And that joy that was set before him was providing this future for you and for me. An eternity with the Father. The Beatitudes are about Jesus. This Beatitude is about Jesus. He is the one that was the the prototype of what it looks like to mourn over the fallenness of this world. And he's also the one who enables us to say that we're blessed when we mourn because we will be comforted. I want to close, if I can, just from Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3, I think Jeremiah understood this concept. He says this, he says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand, and again and again the whole day long. He, God, has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and I cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He has turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished and so is my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and it's bowed down within me. So Jeremiah is mourning. In fact, Jeremiah is mourning and he's watching the city that he loved, Jerusalem, be destroyed before his very eyes. And he's grieving 
And the sorrow that Jeremiah is experiencing here is not a sorrow of going, man, when will the governor let us meet with more than 100 people? The sorrow that, that Jeremiah is experiencing here is a sorrow of seeing his people carried into exile and not knowing what tomorrow holds. And the temple is going to be destroyed and the walls are going to be destroyed. And everything that he has known is now upside down. The grief, the sorrow that he says he has been enveloped in bitterness. But, says Jeremiah in verse 21, but this I call to mind. This I remember in the midst of my sorrow, in the midst of my mourning. This I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. That statement, the Lord is my portion, is a statement of an eschatological hope that Jeremiah had. His hope wasn't in the walls being rebuilt and the temple being reconstructed and regathering there in Israel. His hope was beyond that. It was with God. He didn't know the name of Jesus. But Jeremiah's hope was, unbeknownst to him, in Jesus. In the one who would secure that comfort eternally. Who would provide the payment for Jeremiah's sin for the exile sin, for your sin, and for my sin, which allows us to mourn, but not without hope. And allows us to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reality. Thank you for this truth. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. And your steadfast love truly is great. Your faithfulness is great. And God, we thank you that our hope is in you as our portion. Not here, not now. We experience it in part now. But ultimately, God, that you are our portion eternally, that Revelation 21 is coming, when it will be true that the dwelling place of God is with man and you will wipe away every tear and there will be no more mourning necessary at that time because the fall will be undone, its curse will be over, there will be no more sin or any of its effects. We long for that day, we pray for that day, we pray Jesus come quickly for your bride, the church, in the meantime help us to be found faithful, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.